Well, I'm thrilled this morning again to return to the book of Philippians. We're actually going to start in John chapter 17 this morning, if you want to turn there. It was April 29th, 1992. I was a relatively new seminarian, and I remember being glued to the television. Many of you will remember this. As a jury of uh, the public acquitted four Los Angeles police officers of excessive force in the arrest and beating of a man by the name of Rodney King. Rodney King is a black man, and many of L.A.'s black community were inflamed by that ruling. And in the six days of riots that ensued, 63 people were killed, more than 2,300 injured, 12,000 people were arrested, There were 3,600 fires set and 1,100 buildings looted and destroyed. And in all, it totaled about $1 billion in property damage that was done in Los Angeles alone. Rodney King, the man who was batoned, famously appealed to the public saying, quote, can't we all just get along? And it should be obvious to anyone who has even remote association with the Bible that Rodney King's question, really what was a plea from him, is answered resolutely in the scripture. The answer to the question of can't we all just get along is no. Man cannot get along because mankind, according to Jesus, is evil. Mankind, according to the scriptures, is self-centered, self-serving, self-protective, and unapologetically selfish to the core, sinful to the core. This is why the world cannot just get along. This is why there are forever wars and rumors of wars. This is why the world is filled with rancor. This is why things are so volatile all of the time. This is what's wrong with the world around us. This world, I know, is no surprise to you that I say this, but it is obviously marked with profound animosity, man against man, woman against woman, children against parents and vice versa. It is vile, it is bitter, it's full of slanderous attacks. Every night we see that the world is a very, very divided place that undermines and despises authority. It's evident in our day where culture is just constantly dividing and and breaking things up by way of skin color, by way of gender, by way of, of sexuality, by way of every imaginable distinction, nationality, ethnicity. This world is divisive and it is full of discord And I know that you understand everything I just said. It's that evident. It's that plain. The tendency of our world is always to disintegrate. Always to disintegrate. Everything is disintegrating. The world is always fracturing. The world is always splintering, being severed one from the other, breaking down. And the the sad thing is, is that that, tendency toward disillusion, toward divorce, toward breakup, 
tends to infiltrate the church, doesn't it? We've known a church split. We know how hard relationships can be in the church. We've heard the stories. We've experienced it ourselves. And yet God's people are to be different. We are to be those who are marked by those graces that tend toward a relational solidarity, toward a peaceful stability, toward a resilient and a, and a joyful unity. Our relational oneness is one of the very fundamental things, says Jesus, that distinguishes his people from the world. It's our togetherness and our relentless commitment to one another and love for one another in Christ that manifests the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ to turn self-centered people into other-centered people who seek to die to themselves that they might live to the glory of God and the good of one another. The church is a place where people from every imaginable, but <clears throat> imaginable background, every color, every socioeconomic status, every everything, come together in love and unity. And we are to be a people not characterized by rancor and division and strife and hatred, but love and fellowship, frankly, that the world can only envy. Look with me at John 17. You'll see that there is a reason that this is the case. And we'll pick up in verse 20. Jesus has been praying just before he goes to the cross. And he's had his disciples in view. But he here in verse 20 begins to broaden that prayer to all of us who would believe in Christ through the apostles' teaching. Look at verse 20. I do not ask, Jesus says, on behalf of these alone, but for those who believe in me through their word. What does Jesus want? Verse 21, that they may all be one. Now note this, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. What is it that consumes the prayer of Christ as he begins to think about leaving before he sends the, the helper who is like he is, who would, who would draw us together out of the world and into the church and into fellowship with the Father and with one another, his great consuming passion is this unity among his people that puts his glory on display in front of the world. His love for his own. 
his unique relationship with them. That we would be, as a church, a reflection of the very Godhead so instrumental in our salvation that we would reflect the unity that exists within the Godhead itself. That that unity would be perfected in the church as it is among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. That that very same unity of love and peace and affection and commonality of purpose that exists among the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit would very much mark the fellowship that you and I have together as Christ's body, the church. And what should come crystal clear as we look at this passage in Philippians this morning is that Paul is still very, very concerned about this issue, this issue of unity in the church at Philippi. There were a lot of things that were very right about the church of Philippi. So many things that were worthy of praise. There were so many good things about this church. They were a good church, a sound church, a a gracious church, a loving church. And yet, not everything is right in the church. And Paul is going to point to that even as he begins to to press home these realities in chapter 2, really up through verse 18, but we'll only look at the first couple of verses here this morning. I pointed it out a couple of times already, and we won't take time to go back through it, but there, there is division and discord in the church at Philippi. There, there are the rumblings of division, and their unity was being tested. There was pride evidenced in their midst. There was an argumentativeness. There was a complaining about this, that, and the other thing. There were disputes and there were factions that threatened the church. And Paul wants them to simply resolve their differences. He wants them to fix their factions. He wants them to put away these disputes. And if you've ever been part of something like that in the church and I know most of you have, you're well aware how difficult it can be to do that. You don't simply wave the magic wand of unity and see see all those things repaired. This takes profound humility. This takes a focus on the gospel of Christ and an understanding of all that God has done for us in Christ. And it's, it's through that vertical grasp of God's kindness to you that you then live with that kind of kindness toward others, that kind of grace, that kind of mercy, that kind of forgiveness. And it's in sharing a common value of the, of the, <laughs> the profound value and worth of the church. That is something I missed entirely in my youth. The church existed. It was good. I was grateful for it. I liked attending it on Sundays. What I did not understand until I began to study the scriptures more carefully is how central the church is to everything in God's program. And it is the thing, ultimately, that Jesus is about on earth. Think of that. It is the priority for the Lord Jesus Christ. We are his body. We are his bride. How focused were you on your bride? 
How focused were you in those days prior to the wedding? What kind of place did she have in your thinking? What was it that you wouldn't have done for her? Jesus came to die for the church. Jesus gives everything for the church. I could not preach a sermon that would place a high enough value upon the church. I couldn't convey it to you. And Paul here is coming to these people and he's saying, beloved brethren, beware of the way you view the church and the way you live relationally among one another. It's so critical. We are being called in this passage and in really page after page after page of the New Testament to manifest the same love and unity and peace and affection, the same direction, the same way of thinking, the mutuality and the oneness that exists within the Godhead is the aspiration of the church that that we might live like that. And Paul wants to bring this and set it before the eyes of the Philippians and call them to account. And so he says in, we'll pick up here in a moment in Philippians 1 if you're not there, and verse 27, but this really is one section and there's an unfortunate chapter break right at chapter two. It's, it's one flow of thought and the flow of thought is primarily this, that, that the church would live together in unity, a unity that would manifest the wonder of the gospel the mighty converting power of the Lord Jesus Christ through his gospel. And Paul says we want to stand together on the truth of the gospel. We want to strive together for the faith of the gospel. We want to suffer together for the cause of the gospel. And the common thread through all of this is that emphasis of, yes, you're going to do those things. You're going to stand. You're going to strive. You're going to suffer. But it's all together. It's y'all, not you. And Paul makes this very earnest appeal to unity in the life of the church. Let's pick it up again in verse 27. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. You'll remember that's the main verb of this section. This is the call. Conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, in no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake, experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me and now here to be in me. Therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, 
maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, doing nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also the interests of others. Father, take these words, do what no man can do, but you alone, Lord, and that is send forth your word for the purposes that you wish to send it forth. Accomplish your purposes. May it return to you, Lord, with good fruit. We pray that we would be soft and supple hearers, not who deceive ourselves, but those who do what you teach. Lord, that we would take the seed of your word in deep and that it might grow up and strong and produce fruit in our lives to the glory of your name. Amen. This earnest appeal for unity in the life of the church, Paul really is appealing for the fulfillment of the very prayer of Jesus in John 17, that we would be one as the Godhead is one. And what I want you to see and consider here this morning, we're not going to get as far as I had hoped, but what I want you to see is what, what Paul is really thinking about. He's writing a letter. You've written letters. You know that in order to write a letter, you've got to think about what you want to write. And yes, Paul is writing uniquely in that he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but Paul is not merely a hand being carried carried by some, some mystical pen. Paul is thinking thoughts by the Holy Spirit which are being recorded as the infallible, inerrant word of God but what is it that is in his mind? That's always the question when we come to the text. What does the author mean? Why did he write what he wrote? When he calls us to live in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, what does he mean? What is he thinking about? My guess is I know what you're thinking about. If I were to ask you, are you living a life worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, most of you would begin to take inventory of your life and you would begin to think to yourself, well, yeah, I mean, in, in, in many ways, I mean, I'm really super consistent about faithfully reading my Bible. I set out and I've developed that discipline of reading through the scripture every year and, and yeah, Perhaps you'd say, well, I'm devoted to prayer. And I do pray for the Lord's will. And I pray for the people of this church. I pray for the governing authorities. That would be a good thing. And you might say to me, well, you know, I'm I'm leading a life of obedience. I mean, it's not perfect, but I'm striving in my thinking, in my acting, in my my, uh, motivations in the way that I speak to people, to live obediently. Perhaps you'd tell me, well, I'm, I'm, I'm laboring diligently to talk about Christ on a regular basis with the people I come across in this life, and that's good. Maybe you'd say to me, well, I'm seeking to manage my home effectively for the glory of God, seeking to raise children who know him and who follow him. All those are really good answers. All of those things are certainly the marks of a God-honoring life. All of those things 
uh, are there in the Bible. And this is the way, really, that most of us, I think, tend to think about the question, but there's something stunted about those answers. There's something short-sighted about them. What is it? They're all fixed on self. They're all fixed on me and what I do and the fruit that God is bearing out of my life. They're individualistic. There's one person in the mirror. They're all isolated from the context, really, of life in the church. And the reason I I, I say that I would expect that from you is because they're the very kinds of things that I would probably say in response to that question. Are you leading a life that magnifies the gospel of Jesus Christ? You, You know, you think about the questions that we tend to ask each other. Is Jesus your personal Lord and Savior? How's your walk with the Lord? How's your quiet time going? How was worship? I got to. Ask, I was asked this all the time, leaving the charismatic church in my younger and wilder days. How was worship for you this morning? I've told you before. It wasn't until I got to seminary that I began to figure out that all those yous that I had taken to refer to Dave in the Bible were actually y'alls referring to all of us in the church. We're so self-focused. And again, there's nothing wrong with any of those questions per se, but it's very telling about the questions that we don't ask of ourselves or of others. Has Christ saved you and brought you into the fellowship of his people? Isn't it a joy to live among the people of God? Do you talk to people like that? How are your relationships here at the church? with your brothers and sisters in Christ? Who have you gotten close to? Who ministers to you? Who edifies you? Who builds you up? Who encourages you? And who do you encourage? In what ways is the Lord enabling you to edify the people here? You know, brother, I love you, man, and I'm just so grateful to share life in Christ with you, how could we together labor to stimulate one another to love and good works? Could we raise the level of this church somehow by the way we serve, by the way we teach, by the way we pray, by the way we minister? See, the problem is we're thinking more like Americans than we are like Christians. We're thinking more about I and me before us and we. We think in terms of a radical individualism, of personal achievement. And I've told you before, there's nothing wrong with saying Jesus died for me. He did die for me. The Apostle Paul uses that very language in Galatians 2.20, that Christ gave himself for me. Paul sits back and thinks about how astonishing it is that that Christ Jesus came to save sinners among whom he is foremost of all. He's astonished at that reality. But Paul coupled with that a constant understanding that Jesus Christ came out to save a people for himself. 
Beloved, life in the church is life lived in the context of the church and of relationship. And as I've said to you in the past, there, our, our culture does not understand this, but there is no such thing as a Bible-less Christianity. Life in Christ is that linked to the scripture. Everything hangs on the truth of the word of God. And so it is that there is no such thing as a churchless Christianity either. We come out of COVID and people say, man, I'll tell you what, I missed the church in those eight or nine weeks when we did not meet. That was really hard to be away. And I praise God for that realization. That has perhaps enriched your, your clinging to, to the church and you've become coming to, to understand how significant it really is in the life of a believer. But if I were to ask you, do you need the church? Man, I gotta tell you, I hope that you will come to a place in your life where you will say, I need the people of God. There's no sense of independence in my life. Wouldn't you like that in your family? Wouldn't you like your children to, to, to sit around your table and not think of themselves by way of somehow independent from your name and who you are as a people, but they would say, no, I, I need a mother and a father. I need my brothers and sisters. I need my grandparents. I love this family. We all want that in our families. Can I tell you there is a family more enduring, more eternal? There is something thicker than blood, and that is the spirit by which we're bound. When you were born into Christ, you were born into the household of God. That's the language of scripture, not my language. You were born into a family, a spiritual family, a fellowship of other redeemed sinners. And you were called, get this, please listen, into an intimate relationship, into an intimate relational context in which was given to you that you might grow and you were given to us that we might benefit from the gifts that God has given to you. And so when the scriptures call us, listen, to walk in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, worthy of our calling, it does so most commonly. You can mark this over the years ahead as you go reading through your annual Bible reading program. You will see that that call of a worthy walk is almost always in the context of the church. There is an intense corporate emphasis to the worthy life. It's about the way we live among God's people. There is a, a profound emphasis 
on the vital importance of the church, and that is absolutely a missing piece in American Christianity, in the American gospel. We tell people, come to Jesus, he'll save you, be born again. But we don't help them understand that the infant in Christ has no hope of really developing much in the graces of God apart from the family of Christ in which he was born to be raised. How vital it is to grow up in the church where you can be sanctified. Now hear me, how vital it is that you're committing to to persevere alongside one another, even through the difficulties. Why? Because it is those very difficulties that make us grow in the likeness of Christ. Those people who go from church to church to church to church, am I saying it's ever wrong to leave a church? No. But what I am saying is I want you to think about the nature of what's being said here and what you will see is that we are to plant roots in a local fellowship that grow deep so that when the winds of the culture and all the the infestation of whatever attacks the Lord's plants, we can stand firm together and stand firm against those breezes and we can stand and strive and suffer as one forest of God's people. Strong, resilient, glorious, magnificent, stronger than you, stronger than me but strengthened by the the indwelling spirit so that we stand firm and people go, glory to God for this. Look at that. It's such a unique thing. It doesn't happen in the world. It cannot happen in the world. This is supernatural. Beloved, you were saved by the Lord Jesus Christ to be part of us. And it is the church that magnifies the reconciling power of the gospel and the glorious indivisibility of the Godhead itself in perfect unity. You're like, Dave, you're talking about, like, that's way up there. Yes. Yes. And it'll be realized in heaven but we must strive to see it realized now. That's what Jesus was praying for while we're on earth. Listen, this has been a relatively lengthy introduction, but you know it's on my heart and this is what I get to do. I I thank the Lord for it. (laughs) Beloved, listen, we can never, 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 never again be satisfied to lead our lives before the Lord with an apathy toward the body of Christ. Some of you still struggle with just being in and among the people of God and staying put, staying tight. You get offended, you get lethargic, you get disinterested. Listen, this is what God has called you to, us, relationships, One another, they're all over the Bible, the one another's. This is where the Christian life is 
borne out. This is where the power of God is manifested in your life to each one of us and all of us to one another and that witness to the world that they go, those people are different. They're weird and they, they're able to have something wonderful that the rest of us do not have. And that message comes through loud and clear. Jesus always prayed according to the Father's will and the Father always answers according to his will. We just wanna be part of that in the way we live toward one another. So it's from this vantage point that Paul begins to make a very earnest appeal to the Philippian church to to stand in unity. And he begins in verse 1 by giving them reasons why they should be committed to living in harmony. He's going to give them four reasons why they should be committed to living together in harmony. So these are the incentives for Christian unity that are found in verse 1 of chapter 2. The incentives for Christian unity. There are four of them, four incentives, four motivations, if you will, four reasons why we ought to be pursuing unity in our midst. Paul comes right out of chapter 1 and verse 27 in this discussion about conducting yourself in a, in a manner worthy of the gospel, standing in one spirit, with one mind striving together, suffering together for the gospel, and that's why he begins with the word, therefore. These are all connected lines of thought. He says, therefore, if there is any encouragement in Christ, if there is any consolation of love, if there is any fellowship in the spirit, if any affection, and compassion. These are four powerful incentives to peace and harmony. And you'll notice that each one of them was preceded by the phrase, if there is any. It's important that you understand what Paul is doing here because it comes across in English in a way that that is a little bit muddied. Paul is using a very intentional rhetorical device here that is intended to stir the Philippians' reflection upon all that God has done for them in Christ. In English, when we say if, we're usually speaking about something that is, uh, you know, uh, something that we don't know what the result is going to be. The result is in doubt. We're, We're a little unsure. It's kind of a conditional statement. You know, if it doesn't rain today... I'm thinking about mowing the lawn. There's nothing of that here. That's not at all what Paul is saying. There's no uncertainty. There's no doubt. Paul is assuming that all four of these things are true in the very experience of every one of the Philippian Christians who are there listening to this letter. He's asserting that each of these things are a fact. He's assuming that they know they're a fact. You could substitute the word since or the word because in for every if. Since there is encouragement in Christ, or because there is consolation of love in Christ, because I know that these things are common to your experience having been saved by Christ, Paul is going to say essentially they ought to move you to live in harmony with one another. These things should compel us, brothers and sisters, to live together in unity. So what are these powerful compulsions to overcome division in the church? 
Well, here's the first one. Paul writes, if or since or because, if there is any encouragement in Christ, he's speaking of the encouragement that comes to us because of our union in the Lord Jesus Christ. The word is periclesis. It means to come alongside and to help. It has the idea of coming alongside someone to encourage them by counsel, by exhortation, by admonition. It's to bring words, really, that, that edify and help someone in need. In fact, this is uh, 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 used of the Holy Spirit. He's called the paraclete in John 14 and 15. A divine helper, one who comes alongside of us to help us, to counsel us, to enable us. Christ himself comes alongside of us. He, he saved you, didn't he, when you were in need, when you were helpless and ungodly, when you were a sinner, when you were his enemy, Christ died for you. He saved you. He shepherds you. He prays for you. He intercedes for you, does he not? He has spoken words of hope and comfort and encouragement to you. He gives you wisdom. He gives you hope. Last week we closed with the song. And it didn't pop like I, I, can I confess to this? Isn't he good? Dave, you preached on suffering. You want us to sing about his goodness? Yeah, it's a gift of his grace. Remember? Salvation and suffering are a gift of his grace. He measures it out. He'll never put more on your trailer than you can tow. And, and he knows exactly how much you can bear. He's so good. Isn't he good? Isn't he kind? Isn't he? Hasn't he blessed us time after time? I mentioned this to one of our music leaders yesterday around my kitchen table, and, and he said, I love that song. And I said, yeah, of course you do, dummy, right? Why, why wouldn't you love that song? How could you not? Because you know it at the core of your being, and you just can't get it out. Praise the Lord for song. It helps but I just owe for a thousand tongues to speak my great Redeemer's praise. Beloved, we know that God has been good to us in Christ and that we're helped and we're encouraged and we've known it, each and every one of us personally, and we have known it together corporately. And Paul says, think about that. Reflect on that because that is a motive to draw near to one another with the same kind of encouragement that Christ has brought to you. Well, there's a second motivation listed here. He says, if there's any consolation of love, there is, isn't there? And this refers to the comfort that we have known from the love of God in Christ. This is not a fragile love, is it? Is it fickle? 
Does he turn on you when you do wrong? Or did he love you at your ugliest? Has he continued to love you, though you have failed him over and over again? Don't we all stumble in many ways? I think so. And yet he has never turned his back on us. There is no shadow of turning with him. His love is faithful. It is through and through. And it is not whimsically put upon us because we are adorable. It is from the core of his being, an act of his will to do us good because he is a loving God. Beloved, he loved you in eternity past and he will love you forever and ever and ever. It's overwhelming. It's overwhelming. And he has loved us with a sacrificial love. He gave his only begotten son that anyone believing in him, the one who believes in him, should never perish. Do you will to come to Christ this morning? Do you want to be loved like this, like no one else could ever love? I tell you, the Lord Jesus Christ casts none away who come to him. None. Come to Christ. Receive Christ. Know the encouragement of Christ. Know the comfort of his love. He extends it to every sinner freely. Whatever you've done, wherever you've been, however dark it has been in your life, he will shine his light on you, forgive every sin you've ever committed. He will receive you if you'll come in repentance and faith. Haven't you found consolation in that reality? I don't know why, but every week people come up afterwards and they say to me, you don't know how hard it was to sit there and listen to that stuff and remain quiet. And I say to you, be like Derek Damore. Just, just bust it out. Let it out. It's not good for you. That's like holding in a sneeze. An amen is a spiritual sneeze. It is a truly, I've got to let it out. Amen? Amen. We're not Baptist enough. Hasn't Christ cheered you? Aren't you glad? Aren't you joyful? Don't you day by day, every time your sin starts to take your breath away and make you tremble that somehow he's cast you aside, <laughs> I can't even talk. The comfort, the comfort of knowing Christ has accepted us and forgiven our sins and accepted us as his own and that he is not ashamed to call us brothers. And that is the Father's will that he will raise us up in the last day and we will be with him forever and ever. I'm speechless. Beloved, you've known what it is to be loved like that sincerely and sacrificially. And that ought to move us to love one another in the same way. 
see some of you on campus during the week, and it's all I can do to restrain myself from greeting you with a holy kiss. And so far, I've been able to hold back. I've left it at a good sidearm hug, but I'm telling you, the compulsion in my soul for you as my redeemed brother and sister, it's overwhelming. And so it should be. And I apologize, and you can tell me, hey, back off, man. You make me nervous. And I'd say, okay, I will. But have mercy on me, okay? Shake my hand at least. <laughs> There's another motive to draw near to one another. He says, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, and he's speaking here where he's used spirit, small s, our spirit in, in, in a previous verse, and he'll come back to us and our response in the next verse, but here he's referring to the Holy Spirit, and this is that fellowship that we have in him. This is that, that unique oneness of God's people that comes from the indwelling Spirit himself. This is not some esoteric, ethereal, ecumenical feel-good fellowship that's orchestrated uh, by men where we drop a bunch of, of, of lines and we, we make a bunch of compromises and we all sort of say, okay, you in, I'm in. We sign on the dotted line. That is not what he's talking about here. No man can create this kind of unity, this kind of fellowship. It is organic. It is within us. It is living. And it is it is powerful, it is supernatural, and it came to you when you were baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. We share the same spiritual DNA, if you will. We are, in the words of 2 Peter 1, 4, partakers of the divine nature. That's you and me together. That's amazing. It's astonishing. And we share this together as the household of God. As I said, we are a family we have a common Lord and a common life and a common faith and a common hope and that should put an end to all the factions and every friction. And yet sin molests. But brothers and sisters, we've got to be committed to this, to the preservation of this unity that we share in the Spirit of God. That's Ephesians chapter 4. We've got to be diligent about preserving it. How can it be, how can it be that we would ever be characterized in this body or in our own interpersonal relationships with anyone in this congregation by the deeds of the flesh, that there would be from Galatians 5 enmities, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, all of that brothers and sisters, is of the world. That's not God's people. We have the Spirit of God and the fruit of that Spirit growing on this tree is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness. It's self-control. It's things like these. We've got to endeavor put off the flesh and its lusts and to live according to the spirit 
And we've known this fellowship. We've known the love of God. We've been cheered by it. We're so grateful for it. And we want to generously extend that love to one another because what? We are brothers and sisters in Christ. How can I be aparted from you? How can I be divided from you? How can I hold a lack of forgiveness in my heart for you? We have the encouragement of Christ, the love of Christ. We have the spirit of Christ. And we know, fourth, the affection and the compassion of Christ. He says, if any affection and compassion. That first word has to do with a a visceral, gut-level feeling. You heard the word feeling of compassion. There is a sense in your gut, in your heart, there is a softness that is provoked by need that has pity on those who suffer, that has pity on those who are ensnared in sin, that has compassion for the weaknesses of others. It is a feeling. The second word there, compassion, is is really the manifestation of those feelings in merciful action. In other words, you're not just a feel-gooder, you're a do-gooder. You feel that compassion, and that compassion drives you forward to extend it in mercy, in love, in whatever is necessary, in forgiveness, so that things might be right again. Hasn't God done that with you? Hasn't Christ been moved by your need? Hasn't Christ acted to relieve your need? That's really what Paul is doing here again. He's pointing to the sympathy of Christ and his tender mercy to meet every one of our needs in all sorts of practical ways. James uses these very same words to describe the Lord in chapter 5 and verse 11. He calls God the, the Lord who is compassionate and full of tender mercy. You know something of the mercy of God, right? You know his compassion and his tenderness. You deserved hell, and yet he felt for you. And he had mercy on you, and he loved you. And that love acted, and it went forward in the giving of his son and his incarnation. And then those 33 years on on planet earth, living in all the indignities of, of, of human flesh. And then he gave himself and became obedient, Paul's going to say, even to the point of death and that on a cross. And he rose again on the third day, and he is interceding on our behalf before the Father even now, and he is coming yet again to take us to himself. If it were not so, he, he would have told us. This Christ, who's done all of that, born of his own compassionate and merciful heart, now through the pen of the Apostle Paul, appeals to us as a congregation. You live like that toward others. You manifest that toward others. 
you manifest that particularly toward those who are unsightly to you, who are unlovely to you, who are difficult to you, who've been unkind to you, who don't deserve your love. You know that's the mark of the children of God, right? That you do it to those who don't deserve. Remember that? Jesus said, you love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you because if you just greet the people who greet you, you give high fives to high fivers, what's that? Everybody does that. You have people over to your house, they in return invite you over. What is that? What distinguishes you from the rest is when you are kind to the undeserving. When you go out in grace and kindness to those who've most offended you and you extend to them the love of Christ, the goodness of Christ, the compassion of Christ. I love this. I love this. Paul is trying to, what is Paul doing here? And I thought, he's simply softening them up. (laughs) He is taking the oil of grace and massaging it back into them to say, is your heart soft yet? Have you contemplated long enough what Christ did for you so that you are ready to go out and live toward one another in the same fashion? Freely, freely you have received, freely, freely give. And since you have experienced all these spiritual realities, and because you know what it is to be treated by Christ in this way, then you go live like it, like a church should. You cannot go on having lived Having been cared for like that, you cannot go on being indifferent to the church and angry with people because you were not treated right, because you did not get what you want, because you're bearing some kind of grudge against others and you're remembering all these past hurts and who said what to you and how you were stiffed over here and neglected over there and over, passed over over here. Friends, let it go. Your focus is on the wrong thing. You exist to be the Lord Jesus Christ, his hands and his feet, his heart, his compassion, his kindness, his mercy to others. You die to yourself and set an example for the rest of us to follow. God didn't treat you like that. God has reconciled you, brother and sister, you who were once irreconcilable, You who once wanted nothing to do with him, he has reconciled you to himself and therefore he has also reconciled us to one another and we've been called into one body and we're to walk in that body in unity. And that is what makes the church of the Lord Jesus Christ such an utter and amazing spectacle to the world. Paul is not simply looking at them and saying, hey, like a lot of us do with our kids, right? Hey, knock it off. He says that to the Corinthians. But to these guys, he says, to these guys, you know, hello, Paul with the Corinthians, he's just like, stop sinning. Okay, Paul. Here, though, he's, he's softening them up. He wants them to think and to be driven by these motivations. He's not just saying, get along, do your best. Hey, why don't you all just, just you know, lay your swords down. He's got them focused on all the blessings and the benefits 
that we receive in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that should motivate us to live in relationship with one another, especially with those who are difficult, in a way that mirrors him, in a way that honors him, in a way that glorifies him. Well, what does a church look like that is unified? That will have to wait for next week. Can we leave it here? With this very, very simple statement. The church is precious to Christ. And the unity of God's people matters massively to God. And when you come to church, when you come to this unique organism that he has created, you come to be part of relationship with other brothers and sisters in Christ. It is not just about the programs. It is not just about the preaching. It is not that you come here merely to pray or to sing or to do any other thing. All those things are good. But understand fundamentally that you have been called into a relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ through faith, and then he sends you forth into the body of Christ to live in relationship among one another in a way that reflects the unity of the Godhead in heaven. That's something else. And so you come not to a place as a passive observer. You don't come to an event as a consumer. You come to engage in relationships so as to benefit from the ministry here, from your brothers and sisters in Christ, and also to contribute to it. And I'm not talking fundamentally about money. Let me ask you as we leave, how are your relationships with your spiritual siblings. Anybody need to leave their gift and go find their brother and get things right? Are you harboring resentments? Still sitting in that seat because it's not next to those people? Still avoiding certain people in the congregation still averting your eyes, still judging him for whom Christ died, still speaking of her who is your sister, purchased by the same precious blood of the same precious lamb. Did you just come in today to get your weekly dose of song and sermon and then make an exit. Is that the picture we're left with in scripture <laughs> about what the body of Christ is about? A little rote, a little ritual, a little money, it's not it. That's what America's doing today. But beloved, that is not what God has called us to. Church is about life together, bound 
as redeemed sinners in one body under one head, devoted to one another in love, and walking in a unity that pleases Christ. Why do we do it? Well, because we've known that kind of encouragement in Christ, because we've been consoled by his love, because we share in the abiding fellowship of the Holy Spirit who is our constant help, and because we've received mercy and compassion from the King of kings and Lord of lords, and it is our sole ambition to want to be pleasing to him. Let's pray. Lord, you have loved us so generously, so lavishly, and we are so small-minded and so prone to forget. Thank you for this text. Thank you for the reminder this morning of all that you've done for us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, the encouragement and the comfort we have, the tender mercies that we've received the compassion that you've shown us for the indwelling spirit who does everything for us in the Christian life, really. Lord, we, 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 we are the recipients of blessing upon blessing upon blessing. I pray this day that these things will never leave our minds or our hearts, that you would anchor them with barbs, that, Lord, you would produce in us a humble Christ-likeness that denies self and takes up a cross and seeks to follow in the footsteps of our blessed Lord who loved us with a love that confounds the world. Lord, may this church confound the world by its love for you and for one another. These things we ask in Christ's name, amen. That is the way to sing in response to the truth of God's word. That is an encouragement. That is, that is pleasing in the sight of God, but it is an encouragement to each of us, yes? How can we fumble with our tongues and hum our songs? Beloved, it fills our heart. Sing. As though it were the last song you'd ever sing on earth. Praise, the God, praise God. Thank you for your great singing. Finally, brethren, rejoice. Be made complete. Be comforted, be like-minded, live in peace, and the God of love and peace will be with you. God bless you.